A reading from 1 Corinthians 10 through 11.1. Warnings from Israel's history. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. The word of the Lord. It was uh, Theodore Roosevelt that said, every word that you write is a smite against the devil. I would add humbly that every word that you read is a conversation with God. I was reading a book uh, by Andy Wilson called Death by Living. I came across a passage where I found myself actually praying as I was reading it. And then I thought this would be something great to read and pray with my family, Waterstone. So we're going to pray a passage from this book. Uh, If you're here this morning and you are not sure about this Christianity thing and this Jesus thing, what I'd like to ask you to do as you hear this is really... Ask yourself if there's at all any room in your life for God, for this God thing. Ask yourself if there's room for God in your life. Let's pray. God is a God of galaxies, of storms, of roaring seas, and boiling thunder. But he is also the God of bread baking, of a child's smile, of dust motes in the sun. He is who he is and always shall be. Look around you now. He is speaking always and everywhere. His personality can be seen and known and leaned upon. The sun is belching flares while mountains scrape our sky, while ants are milking aphids on their colonial leaves and dolphins are laughing in the surf and wheat is rippling and wind is whipping and a boy is looking into the eyes of a girl and mortals are dying. The God who looked on you 
with joy when you were small and racing across his gift of green grass on his gift of feet beneath his gift of sky, watched by his gift of a mother with his gift of love in his gift of her eyes is the same God who will look on you as that race finally ends. He is the same, but we have changed between our opening lines and our final page. We have changed. We cannot see every moment of our own stories, let alone any other mortal story. None of us even have firsthand knowledge of our own early years of existence. What we think we know is all taken on faith. But God, if you can, has been there every second. He has crafted every step and gesture and breath of every mortal you have ever passed, of every driver on every road that has ever flicked by you at night, of every kicking child in every mall. And he will be there when we end. When our time comes, God will be as kind and as generous and as raucous and as deft as he ever and always is. We are mortals. We are seeds grown and hardened for planting, intended for the ground and for a glorious Easter harvest after. Amen. Hey, the Bible is filled with passages like this, Isaiah 44. Half of the wood he burns in the fire, over it he prepares his meal, he roasts his meat and eats his fill, he also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you're my God. They know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Idolatry is not uh, a sin or an activity that we're all that familiar with here in the West. I mean, when we do travel and maybe see it happening in other places, pagan temples and that kind of worship, our instinct is to take out a camera and get a picture of it. We see with the prophet kind of the inconsistency of saying, okay, here's a piece of wood and this half we cooked our oatmeal over it and this half we made a little God and we bowed down to it. We see the inconsistency. Um, have, you, have you seen any uh, idols lately? Any idolatry going on in your travels? I haven't either, but what I have seen is a lot of the verb, idolization. We know what it means in our culture to idolize something. In fact, I came across this awesome story I need to share. There, when the late Star Wars movie came out, Star Wars fans in the house, 
Uh-huh. Um, they did a nationwide search to see who is the most massive Star Wars fan. And they decided it was this man named Eric Negron, who is 44 years old and lives in Elkhart, Indiana. Here, he idolizes the Star Wars movies, and here are some examples of his veneration. Eric has Star Wars tattoos on most of his body. That's him from the Elkhart newspaper. <coughs> Did I say he was 44 years old? He sleeps between Star Wars bedsheets. His girlfriend of 10 years gave him an ultimatum, me or Star Wars, and he picked Star Wars, and she left. He was planning on having a Star Wars wedding and naming their kids after Star Wars characters. Eric owns about $60,000 worth of Star Wars memorabilia, including 25 full-size costumes. Eric saw the Star Wars movie in 2005, Revenge of the Sith, 100 times in 90 days. After viewing an advanced screening of Revenge of the Sith, Eric was quoted in the Elkhart newspaper as saying this, quote, I could die tomorrow a happy man since I've seen the last Star Wars movie. I am complete now, end of quote. We do know what idolization is in our culture. That may be a bit of extreme, but uh, let's pursue that a little bit, shall we? Paul's word for Corinth and his word for Waterstone Community Church on this day is to flee idolatry. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 14. It's the essence of the entire chapter 10, and that's his word for us. Flee idolatry. So I'd like to take three movements and unpack those two words for us. The first thing we need to understand is why did Paul give the command to Corinth? Because you remember this. We say this a lot at Waterstone. It's really important when you read the Bible. We don't understand a passage correctly until we understand what the passage meant to its original audience. So let's unpack what flea idolatry meant in Corinth. And then from there, I want to secondly to ask, what is idolatry? If we're to flee from it, what is it? What did it look like then? What does it look like to us in our culture? And then lastly, I'd like us to understand what the word flee means. Flee idolatry. How do we flee? It's in the text. There's some interesting thoughts for us about fleeing idolatry. It's serious business. Are you ready? Break. Here we go. Corinthians is a letter from Paul, and the scholars call it an occasional letter because it's written to address specific issues that were going on in Corinth. You'll remember that Paul was the pastor at Corinth, the founding pastor. He lived among them for 18 months, got the church going, and then he moved on to plant other churches. Several months after he left Corinth, a family from the church in Corinth wrote him a letter and said, there are some problems going on here. Uh, can you help? And one of the problems was this uh, idea uh, in the early church, it was a common struggle about what to do with meat sacrifice to idols. Now that's like totally foreign to us, but let me talk about it for a minute. I think it'll make sense. In that day, whenever you went to the farmer's market to buy your meat, more than likely that meat had already been offered earlier in the day to one of the uh, gods in the temples in Corinth. The most massive temple in Corinth was called the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of sex 
and love. It was a massive structure in Corinth. In fact, we still have a picture of it, uh, a column left from, uh, this is Corinth, Greece, and that is actually a, a column, a pillar from the temple of Aphrodite. It was the most prominent feature on the skyline uh, back in the day. And Corinth, uh, this temple was known to have um, this place you could go and worship and bring your sacrifices, your chickens, whatever, and you would sacrifice to the goddess Aphrodite. Now, the issue then was that some people, when you would bring the meat home and maybe you were trying to have practice the art of hospitality and have people over, and they realized that you bought the meat that had just hours earlier been offered to a pagan god. And if they were still like not a Christian and wondering how could you eat that meat when it was offered to a god, or maybe they're a new Christian, then they hadn't thought this through completely. Look, the Christian view on this was simple. There's no such thing as another God. So there's no such thing as like an idol. It's just a block of wood. It's a slab of marble. And meat is just meat. So the Christian approach would be give thanks, say your grace, and enjoy. Well done, please. But for others, it wasn't quite that simple because they know that meat has been offered earlier to a pagan god. Maybe there were still some issues of conscience. Maybe they had some bad memories. Maybe they hadn't thought it through completely and they thought that to eat that god, that meat, that god, to eat that meat would still be in some way staying connected to the god. So Paul's counsel is this. Even though you know that an idol is nothing and meat is meat, Sometimes there's a higher ethic involved and we call it love. And it goes like this. If you know that eating meat is going to cause another believer or unbeliever to stumble or to have their conscience triggered, then guess what? You're vegan for the night. You don't eat meat. This is really important, Christians. Listen, there are times in our lives when We limit our personal freedoms and our rights so that others won't be inhibited by our choices, so that they can hear the gospel and see the beauty of Jesus. So sometimes we limit, whether it's drinking, sex, marijuana, whatever the social issue is, the issue is not only is it legal or not, the issue is also... By participating in this, is there a chance I will hinder someone from hearing the gospel from me if I participate? So we live by love. Even though we know an idol's nothing and meets meat, sometimes we're vegan so that others don't stumble. Love. Now, What was also happening in Corinth, though, is they forgot the other half of the equation. One reason that Christians stand out in a culture is because of their love. The other reason Christians stand out in a culture is because of God's holiness. And they display the character of God to a searching culture. What was happening in Corinth is they were getting the love thing okay, but they were also, this is is interesting, it's hard to believe, but yet I believe it. There were Christians in Corinth who were professing to know Jesus, but were not only eating meat sacrificed to idols, they were actually going to the temple and, how shall we put it, participating in the worship liturgy to Aphrodite. At night, around the temple of Aphrodite, a hundred prostitutes would come out and they would offer a 
worshipful experience to anyone who wanted to worship because sexual pleasure was pleasure to the God, Aphrodite. So Christians from Corinth were actually going to the temple and witnessing a little too much. Do you understand what I'm saying? They, they didn't get that there was love and holiness. Holiness. Some in Corinth were adrift. They didn't think this through enough that we're not only to stand out by our love, but also by our holiness. The understanding is that once Jesus becomes Lord, all other loves and desires find their place rightly ordered with Jesus as Lord. So take, for instance, sex. The purpose of sex, the reason God gives us sex is twofold, covenant and compliment. Covenant means that every time a married couple has sex, they renew their marriage vows. It seals the covenant from outside elements. Sex belongs in marriage because that's the purpose of sex, to renew marriage vows every time you have it. The other complimentary part is, guess what? Sometimes when you have sex, kids jump out. Those are the purposes of sex. And so when we go outside of those purposes, there are consequences. Hearts get broken. Souls get gripped, sometimes shattered. And bodies get injured. When God gives us instruction and manual about sex or money or anything, his teaching is do this so that you help yourself or don't do this so you don't hurt yourself. And so we take the manual from from the Bible, God's ways of doing with things like sex and money. And when we participate in those, what comes into our lives is a resolute faith and a deep defiant joy. And when we live that way, honoring God's commitments and ordering our desires rightly under the lordship of Jesus, it stands out in a culture and the culture is at least curious, at most attracted to that resolute trust and defining, defiant joy. Let me, let me illustrate it to you. We have uh, known today a letter from 200 AD written by a Christian to uh, a pagan who was curious as to why the Christian movement, even by 200 AD, was burning like a wildfire fire through the Roman Empire. What explains the stunning growth of Christianity in the Roman culture? The way that the disciple put it, one of the lines is, it's an amazing line, we share our table with all, but we do not share our bed with all. In other words, Christians are promiscuous with money, but not with their body. Christians hold sex as sacred and money as scattered. Pagans hold money as sacred and sex as scattered. And so Christians stood out in the culture displaying the holiness of God to a watching world and they were at least curious, at most attracted by the stunning beauty of Jesus Christ that could turn a life upside down. But some in Corinth were adrift. 
They forgot of this love and holiness. And so Paul steps into this problem and says, Corinth, flee idolatry. So we now understand why he gave the command. Let's talk about what it means, idolatry. Let's let God start with the definition of idolatry. He says in Exodus 20, verse three, you will have no other gods before me. And then Jesus came and put his definition all around that, said you will love the Lord your God, you know this, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's my Awana days coming out there. <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. So let's cut to the chase. Here's what idolatry means from God and Jesus. Idolatry happens in our lives when we make anything more important to us than God. That's idolatry. It's that one thing that we look at and we say, oh, if I only have that, whatever, thing, relationship, person, if I only have that, then my life will be complete. Or we look at it and say, it's because I don't have that that I feel I don't even want to get up tomorrow. It's idolatry. And may I remind you that most of the things that we struggle with as far as idols are concerned are good things. Not blocks of wood or slabs of marble. They're things like a, a house or a good-looking body or, 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 or a career or a certain income level or uh, an apocalyptic romance or uh, a marriage or a child or uh, our, our families. They're often really, really good things, secondary things that we put as the ultimate thing. And we expect them to be our functional savior and to meet our needs and give us everything our heart longs for. And that's why the divorce rate is so high. Because we think this person's going to come along and we're going to fall in love and we're going to marry them and they become our idol and they, we expect them to fix us. And man, you are going to crush that relationship in a matter of months, maybe years. When secondary things are worshipped as primary things, that is idolatry. Now, let's go into the text because Paul wants us to see how Israel worked with idolatry, how it kind of plagued and polluted their faith, and we have much to learn from the example of Israel. Notice in verses one through five, when they started, they all started from a very good place. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, interesting that Corinth is a Gentile church, but they're called our ancestors, the Jewish fathers, which means it's the same story, right? The Old Testament and the New Testament is the same story. Our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So under the cloud, you remember, they were 40 days wandering through the desert, trying to get into the promised land, but they were guided by day, a cloud, by night, a pillar of fire. They passed through the sea. That's the formative event of Israel when the Red Sea parted and they walked through on dry ground, sure death, but God, in a sense, raised them from the dead and defeated their greatest enemy, death the Pharaoh army. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, drank from the spiritual rock. Interesting, the Jewish uh, ancient uh, interpreters 
You know, in Numbers, it says only twice that they got water from a rock, but for 40 years in the desert, you cannot survive without water. What happened? What seems to have happened, and we don't understand all these events that happened in the Old Testament, but it seems that the rock followed them. It's, I, don't, I can't explain it, except Paul says that was Jesus carrying the rock around, giving them water the living water, right? Jesus was that rock. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies scattered in the wilderness. Here's the point. The point is that Israel had these spiritual blessings, these amazing, powerful miracles, and God, Jesus the rock, the father of the cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, this amazing guidance in their life, telling you, go here, camp there, stay there. Amazing power, Incredible guidance, and still Israel struggled with idolatry. There's something for us to be learned there. We have the same spiritual blessings. Our baptism, uh, our, our, the Lord's Supper, bread from heaven. We have the same kind of amazing spiritual experiences. We should be warned about adultery. I mean, idolatry. Adultery too. Uh, six through 10. Now an anatomy. This is how it looked in Israel. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil as they did. So what Paul's going to do is say, here are three, three ways adultery gets into our lives. Don't be adulterers as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's a quote from Exodus 32, which is the story of the golden calf in Israel. Remember Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the law. He was up there for like 40 days and the people were like, what is taking so long? We got to get going. Let's Get go! I'm tired of waiting on God. And so what happens is they get totally impatient and they decide to make their own God in the form of a golden calf, one of the area local deities and pagan gods. They make this golden calf and they start, start worshiping it. Now, we, we look at that and say, that is just totally whacked. And it is, but have you ever got tired of waiting for God to come through with something big in your life and you just decide, heck with this, I'll fix it. Whatever my heart wants, I'll get it. Substitution, idolatry by substitution. God's busy must be, I don't know what's taking so long, I'll fix this. Has that been a temptation to you? As for me. Another way, verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Wow. It's harsh. What had happened, this was from Numbers 25. Moab was a great enemy of Israel, and they were always fighting with armies. But this one particular occasion, Moab came up with a great military. Uh, strategy to try. They decided that instead of sending an army into Israel to defeat them, they would round up all the virgins in Moab and send an army of virgins in to seduce the young men. Guess what? It worked. And soon Israel found itself still going to the temple, still worshiping Yahweh, the one true God, and having in their country these high places where they would also go to worship their wives' God. Baal, the, the Canaanite god of fertility. 
So it was a Jesus plus kind of approach to idolatry, right? Give me a little Jesus, I'm a fan, but I also need this part of this religion, I need this relationship, and I'd like this car. You know, whatever it is, it's a Jesus plus kind of idolatry that permeates our life. Yeah, I like Jesus, he's just all right with me, but I also like this, this, and this. Jesus plus. By the way, this is, I would say, the most common way of idolatry in our culture. Most Americans, here's their religion. They decide their worldview or what kind of life they want to live, and then they go and select all the elements from various worldviews that they want. You know, I, I want to live this kind of life, so give me a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's just an eclectic worldview. Even though the, the um, worldviews contradict each other in their truth statements, ah, don't worry about, you know, as long as it makes me happy, this is my story. Not to pick on Star Wars, I'm a big fan. But George Lucas is a great example of this. Uh, he calls himself a Buddhist Methodist. Uh, if, if you watch the Star Wars movies, what's in them? Little bit of Taoism, little bit of Islam, little bit of Christianity, little bit of Hinduism, little bit of Buddhism. They're all there. Throws them into the blender and it makes a great story. That is a common way of idolatry in our culture. Lastly, you see in verses nine and 10, uh, verse 10, they, and they grumbled as some of them did. This is from Numbers chapter 21. Frankly, Israel got so tired of, of uh, the manna that would fall. It looked like, you know, frosted flakes and they had to eat it three times a day. They got up one morning and said, man, I am so tired. I am so tired of frosted flakes. So they grumbled and they turned their back on God they began to live as if God did not exist. Now, has that form of idolatry ever happened to you? Where maybe you grumbled, maybe you just got weary. You know, the Christian life is no picnic. And, and God's not coming through in the way that you hoped he would. Or have you ever just began to inch God out of your life, allowing other things in that inch you out? Let me give you a great quote that will make you feel really guilty. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> Philip Yancey, most days I am not so conscious of choosing between a God and God. The alternatives do not present themselves so clearly. Rather, I find God edged out by a series of small distractions, a car that needs repair, a coming trip, a leaky gutter, a friend's wedding. These distractions, might we add children in the, into that list? Uh, mere trivialities may lead to a form of forgetfulness that resembles idolatry in its most dangerous form. The busyness of life, including all its religious busyness, can crowd out God. I confess that some days I meet people, work, make decisions, all without giving God a single thought. A friend of mine was stopped dead in her tracks by a skeptic. After listening to her explain her faith, he said this, but you don't act like you believe God is alive. I try to turn his accusation into a question. Do I act as if God is alive? It is a good question, one that lies at the heart of all idolatry and that one that I must ask myself again every day. 
So Israel's example to us is that idolatry sneaks into our lives through substitution, through sometimes addition, Jesus plus, sometimes subtraction, where Jesus gets pushed out of our lives. We are examining our hearts to see if there is idolatry in there. And let me say, that's a very important self-evaluation because this is seriously serious. Verse five, we already read it, but it mentions that God was not pleased with Israel as a result of their idolatry and there were bodies scattered around the desert. Now don't misunderstand. I don't think God is calling their salvation into question. I don't think he's talking about eternal destiny. But at the same time, what he is talking about, that Christian or not, we live in a moral universe created by a holy God so that when we decide to walk on paths that are against his good advice, do this and help yourself, don't do this and hurt yourself. When we decide to take it into our own way, there are consequences. There are broken hearts, broken relationships, and at times, broken bodies. This is serious business. There is the cost of disobeying God and chasing idols of living far less than the abundant life God wants us to live and have. So what do we do? It's serious business, this idolatry, putting anything in God's place in our heart. What do we do? Flee. Flee idolatry. So let's talk about what that looks like. Flee. It's in the text, verses 11 through 13. First, these things happened to us as examples and were written down as warnings for us. That's the second time. It happens, so that same quote is in uh, verse 6 of the text. Twice God says, you need to read your Bibles and learn how life works and who God is. First thing, what fleeing idolatry looks like is that you are a person who reads your Bible for two reasons. One, you read the Bible to learn who God is. It's the Father's voice. This is not just a book, it's a voice. This is God talking to us. You say, I've never heard God talk to me. I say, yes, you have. It may have been my vocal cords, but it's God's voice. If you wanna know who God is and how we're supposed to live and be blessed, it's in this voice. And so Christians read, we read our Bibles to know who God is. We also read our Bibles because Jesus did, and he's our model. You remember that every time Jesus was tempted or tested, what came out of his mouth? Scripture. He was so saturated by the Father's voice that when he was tempted, he quoted Scripture and basically told Satan to go to hell. And when he was tested, he quoted the Psalms. He prayed the Psalms and agonized the pain of his life, but he held on to his father. This is the presence of God in your life. This is the wisdom of God in your life. This is the voice of your heavenly father who loves you. This is not just a book. This is life. Are you, even if you're not a Christian, you want to know who God is? We always tell you, we have this great program here at Waterstone. It's called Steal a Bible. 
take a Bible from the back of the chair in front of you and take it home and open to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Start reading. If you want to know who God is, it starts with Jesus. On our website, there are some great apps that we have for you where you can read the Bible through in a year or read it through one time over a three-year period. And there's some teaching behind it so that you can understand some of the weird passages in the book of Numbers. Read the Bible. It's the way to flee idolatry. It tells you what you're running toward. Second, in verse 12, it talks about that we need to sit down and think this through. Um, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. There's an evaluative process there. There's a sense in which all the time, Jesus wants us to sit down and evaluate the idols in our hearts. John Calvin said, our heart is an idol factory. So we need to tour the factory time or two. It could be five minutes a day. It could be an hour a week. I know some of you believers, uh, Waterstone you followers, you take a day a month where you just sit down with God in quiet solitude and say, okay, God, what do you have for me? And you search through the idols in your heart. There's a great quote from uh, William Temple, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. He said, your religion, listen, this is really interesting. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So let's say when you have five minutes, when no one's pulling on you, when no one's demanding your attention, and your mind can effortlessly go where it wants to go, where does it go? That may be your God. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. So evaluate the idol factory called your heart. Thirdly, verse 13, there's no temptation that is, uh, we've ever experienced that isn't common to mankind. We may think we have unique struggles, we don't. Whether they're from the outside or whether they're from the heart, from our inside, we are in this together. We are all tempted. We are all tested. And therefore, what we need is each other because we're in this together. Let me cut to the point. Do you have a friend in your life with whom you can share your deepest temptations, your greatest fears, the things that you would most like to, to work on in your life. You will not make it through the Christian life. You will not grow as you should unless you have a friend that you take a risk with and share your heart. Do you have that person? If after the service today, this is maybe tapping you on the shoulder and you'd like to pray with someone about anything in your life, we're gonna have elders and Stephen ministers down here in the front. But even more, come down, even if you say, Larry, I need to get in an environment where I can find a friend like that. Can you help me? We have small groups, we have mentoring relationships, we have classes. There are uh, several different environments here at Waterstone where you can find someone who you can share your heart with because we're all in this together. Lastly, trouble. When we have troubles come into our lives, it's one of the primary ways we know that God's walking with us. And in those troubles, he creates a way of escape. He's faithful. He knows how much we can take. He's walking with us. He knows we need a way of escape. And what's the way of escape? Boy, it's scripture, it's friendship, and uh, it's solitude. But God is always opening that door to us and he wants to run with us. Do you know, I think sometimes we get this confused. Sometimes we think, well, if I just keep fighting against this temptation, it will go away. 
You know, I have found that not to be true. I don't know about you. I'm still tempted by things now at 54 that I was tempted with at 14. Some temptation, I'm not sure that's the design. Sure, I've grown. Sure, I've learned certain strategies. Uh, I'm better maybe at it, but the temptations are still there. And you still have, no matter 54 or 14, you have to take precaution in your life. You have to flee from temptation, from idolatry. Do you know what the word flee looks like, what it literally means? Let me just show it to you. You ready? Flee from temptation. I think we think that we'll get to a point where we're not tempted by things. I'm submitting to you from the Apostle Paul that victory looks like this. Running is winning. And when we run from the idolatry, from the temptation, Jesus runs with us. He's made the way of escape. Running is winning. Never ended a sermon this way, but here it goes. Waterstone, flee idolatry. And as you run, Jesus promises to give you thick thighs. The word of the Lord. Let's close with prayer. Then we'll sing our hearts and the beauty of Christ and the benediction. All right, I want us to pray for a few minutes here on this. An idol search in our heart. Let's pray together. God is a consuming fire. He is jealous for us. No idols. You're messing your life up if you're chasing idols. No idols. God is a consuming fire. Every place he burns is purified and made holy. When we come to faith in Christ, we are enveloped. We are literally drenched in the spirit of God, the baptism of fire. The spirit brings this presence of Jesus on his followers. Fire is what happens when we come together in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ. We receive his mercy and his forgiveness through his sacrifice. And then we lay down our lives for him, consumed by the fire of his love and his holiness. Now, some of you here this morning, you are wood. You've been going to church for a while now and you carry your wood around. You're religious and your wood is valuable to you, but you've never encountered God. You've never been set on fire. So you've got all this good wood, ritual, good works, religion, but you're not passionate about God. Be careful with your wood because God can even consume wood that's been drenched in water. Bring your heart to the altar this morning. Say, Father, ignite me. Some of you are ashes. What's happened is that you were wood and at some vulnerable moment in your life, you said, God, I'm yours. I understand you're a consuming fire. I give you everything, my life, 
my hopes, my pain. Everything's yours. And God consumed you in that moment and you were set ablaze for the Almighty. But then you let the fire go out. Now you see nothing but ashes. And the way you talk is, there was a time, there was a time when I knew God. There was a time I felt close to him. There was a time when I risked big for him. You keep looking back in your life and you're carrying around your ashes. God will blow those ashes back into flame. Bring your heart to the altar and say, Father, ignite me. Some of you here this morning, you've never once said to the Father, I want to believe you. Jesus, I want you to save me. I'm yours. You need to bring your heart to the altar right now and say, Jesus, I'm yours. Save me. Ignite me. We're going to sing a song that declares the beauty of Jesus. As we sing it, just say, Father, Ignite my heart again with the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's stand. Let's sing.